All right, so Psalm chapter four. There is what is called a superscription before you get into the verses. Likewise, in Psalm three. The difference between Psalm three's superscription and Psalm four's, Psalm three gives you a time in David's life where he was writing the Psalm from. His son Absalom was spearheading a revolt, an insurrection, and that is what produced the content of Psalm chapter three. Psalm four, the superscription, is more related to the song or psalm being accompanied to music. It says, to the chief musician. So he's writing this song, this hymn, if you will. He's writing it to what we would call the choir director, the chief musician. Let me put it in the language you'd understand, the worship leader. And he's putting together a psalm and he wants it to be played with only stringed instruments, instruments by the hand. Right away, it's telling us a certain tone or texture to the psalm. The psalms were used to conduct corporate worship for Israel. Just as we're doing on a Wednesday night, coming together, singing songs or psalms, and then letting the word of God minister to us. I would say to you, as you keep coming on a Wednesday or a Sunday, the reason we come together corporately, the reason we gather, it's not only scriptural, Hebrews chapter 10, it's not only historical, the early church gathered in groups, sometimes in homes, sometimes in public settings. It's not only in the Old Testament, they gathered around the synagogues and the temple, but you can hear God speak in one voice when you come together and he harmonizes his people. Yes, he can speak to you when you're on your own, independently, intimately studying through the word of God. He speaks through his word primarily. He speaks through relationships of other believers. He speaks through circumstances. But I'm convinced that when we come together, he harmonizes his body, just like a choir director would be doing with the different instruments and the different singers. And God is saying to his church today, that he needs us to be prepared. He needs us to be readied. He needs us to be worshipful. There are conflicts and there's confusion and there's chaos in the world, in your world, in your individual world. All of us, let me say it like this, none of us are immune to trouble. If somebody is telling you that they're living a trouble-free life, they're lying. Jesus said, I can promise you this one thing. In this world, you will have trouble, pressure, tribulation. He then said something very unique, but be of good cheer. Wait, what? How am I supposed to have good cheer in the midst of trouble? What was the ingredients? What was the recipe? What did he say next? I have overcome the world. Our Lord and Savior has overcome the trouble. And in him, we then can have what? Shalom. Peace. Without being in him, you're going to go through the same trouble, peaceless. You're going to go to pieces. You're going to fall apart. The goal of this Psalm, Psalm 4, like Psalm 3, 
is to check our faith and make sure we're putting it in the right place. Faith can be placed in the wrong place. You can place your faith, ready, in a pastor and they'll let you down. You can place your faith in a spouse and they will let you down. You can place your faith in a fill in the blank. You place your faith in Christ. He will never let you down. In fact, he will hold you up. Many Bible scholars think Psalm 4 was written at the same time of Psalm 3. In other words, they believe it was the same situation that David was navigating. Maybe. I'm not convinced. Other Bible scholars think that he wrote during a time of national crisis, specifically national drought. The language later on in the Psalm might lend itself to believe that. Some think that he wrote it during the time when Saul was persecuting him. He was on the run. He was in caves. He was isolated. I think the point of the ambiguity is that it doesn't matter when he wrote it. Something was pressing in on him. There was pressure around him. He had critics, naysayers, haters. He had antagonists. There were those slandering him. His circumstances were unstable. It seemed like everything was coming at him. Perhaps his family was falling apart. Perhaps his son Absalom was plotting and planning an insurrection. Maybe his employer, King Saul, was attempting to terminate him. I don't know if it matters as much as the believer today making personal application to their own life. So yes, we can tie Psalm 4 with Psalm 3, similar situation, or not. We most certainly can tie Psalm 4 to Psalm 3 in structure. It's a very consistent structure throughout the book of Psalms. You'll notice it begins with an invocation. Calling out, crying out, pleading for something. It then usually moves into a question, a predicament, a dilemma. He's either aiming that question Godward or manward. At some point along the journey, he begins to confess. Confession is not always negative. I confess my sins. Yes, sometimes confession is positive. And here's why. The word confession is homologio. Homo means same. Logio is word. When you confess, you're saying the same word. The reason we confess to God is we're saying the same thing as God. When I say I'm a sinner and I'm confessing, he goes, I agree, you are a sinner. Thank you for confessing. <laughs> when I say you're good and you're faithful, I'm confessing what he already knows because he already is what I'm confessing. Is this making sense? Okay. At some point in the Psalm, there's a confession. At some point in the Psalm, there's a petition. What's the ask? What are you asking God for? And then no doubt at the end of most Psalms, there might not be an immediate answer. Guys, can you give me your attention before you go back to your notes or your Bibles? There might not be an immediate deliverance from the current predicament. But his faith in the right place 
has him saying that he can feel secure and stable because God is his refuge and his answer, even if he doesn't get the answer he's praying for. So this is Psalm chapter four, beginning with a quote. David turned an assault into a psalm. He turned a wrong into a song. And the reason he was able to do that in Psalm three and in Psalm four and the rest of the Psalms is because he allowed God to be God. Would you allow God to be God tonight? Just allowing God to be God in your life. And what does that look like? That he's your governor. He's the one that superintends, oversees. He's your judge. He's your ruler, your savior, master. He's God. And he is God alone. And when we step into that place, where we're trying to make sovereign decisions over circumstances that we have no sovereignty over. You understand what I'm saying? We're playing God. And that is what leads to anxiety and worry and frustration. So let's jump in to the deep end. Psalm four, verse one. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. What a beginning. And here's why I love it. Like most letters, you're addressing the recipient of the letter. Like every prayer, you are addressing God most high. He begins by stating, hear me when I call you. And then the title, O God of my righteousness. He's declaring that God is his righteousness. Whether my circumstances are right or wrong, I know one thing. God, you are my righteousness. When you begin that way, God is the only one that can vindicate you. God is the only one that can declare you righteous. God is the only one that has the final verdict that actually matters, period. Some of you are up against some very complicated scenarios and situations. Whether it be waiting for a human to give you the answer that you're waiting on or a doctor or something. I'm saying to you, that's good. You do what you can. But faith begins when you stop doing what God should be doing. So I say you do what you can. That's faith. But you let go and let God do what you can't. David begins. Hear me when I call. You are my righteousness. The language, we read it in English. It helps when you Look into it in the original, which is Hebrew in, in the Old Testament and Greek in the New. And what you'll discover in the next phrase, you have relieved me in my distress, sounds like he's asking for relief in a present pressure. He is, but he isn't. The language is past tense. He is saying, you have relieved me in past circumstances where I was closed in, or as we say, I feel like I am in between a rock and a hard place. I feel like I'm boxed in. I feel like I have no options. He is saying, I feel like I am in a narrow space and I feel suffocated. That's what he's saying. But because I know you were faithful back then, I know for a fact you'll be faithful again. Do you get that? He is saying, back in the day, I can think of circumstances where I was in between a rock and a hard place, and there was no delivery in view. And you came through. 
And I'm confident and convinced enough to know that if you came through back then, then Lord, I believe you're going to come through again. I mean, he's beginning by declaring that God is faithful, that he has enlarged David in a narrow place before. Do you know what that feels like? You ever been in circumstances, trials or troubles where you felt like you were in a narrow space and yet the Lord being faithful enlarged your territory, enlarged your responsibilities, enlarged your influence, enlarged your faith through a very hard time in your life and you can only see it that way in hindsight. That's the point. I'm convinced faith often grows not with foresight, but in hindsight. When I look back and realize God was faithful. When I didn't think he was there, when I didn't think he was working out my circumstances, when I couldn't see a way and I look back and I realize he was there all along. He was weaving a masterful, redemptive story. So faith forward sometimes requires you to look backward. This is what David is, he's saying, you have relieved me in my distress. And then he goes before the throne room of grace with the only merit that he could ever have. Did you see it? He says, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Did you know that? The only merit that you have in God's presence is his own mercy. It's not a merit system. It's not work-based. It's not based on who you are as a person. I'm good, so therefore I can have God hear my prayers? No, God hears us based on his mercy, period, not our merit. Anybody relieved of that tonight? Anybody came in with spiritual pressure on your shoulders, thinking that God is only going to hear you if you can perform? God is only gonna answer your prayers if you get your life together. No, he answers prayers based on his mercy and who he is. It's his righteousness, it's not our rightness. When we spend time in his presence, he is the God of our righteousness. He makes us righteous. I hold on to his mercy. That relieves me of any spiritual pressure. Spiritual pressure is crushing at times, right? The religious spirit is crushing. He moves into verse two, which is a question. How long, O you sons of men? Will you turn my glory to shame? Now, remember, David is the voice. How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. Now, remember, that doesn't really have a clear definition to it. Many Bible scholars believe Selah is either a, an interlude of sorts. It's a musical pause. It's attached to the psalm. Some have suggested it means something entirely different. But either way, I see it as it is a, ref, a time of reflection. The music would be an interlude. David is asking a question here. Who's the audience? Well, he's talking to God. So there's one application that the more he talks to God, ready? The more confident and bold he will be to talk to man. That's always true. Let me say this. Those that are willing to speak humbly to God they will then be able to speak boldly to man. If you are spending time talking to God, 
he will give you the confidence to be able to speak to man. I believe that's one application here. He just got done talking to God and now he's perhaps asking questions of those that seem to be against him. But if he's not saying it to them directly, I still think the question is his frustration and even another application is that it's not man word, it's God word. Translation, where does he take his frustrations? He's taking them to God. Where do we often take our frustrations? Right? Definitely somebody else. We take our frustrations out on somebody else or we take our frustrations to somebody else. And yes, there's a time and place for that. There is a time that we lean on each other and we have a place to vent. But if our venting doesn't lead to a changing or an action, then our venting, which just builds back up until somebody else lends me an ear, there's got to come a time and a place where we go, you know what? This ain't working. Every time I call that person and tell them my woes and my problems, yeah, it might feel good temporarily in the moment, but it builds back up, does it not? You want to know why? Because we're not placing it where it belongs, which is heavenward. And yes, I've said this before. Peter would write it. David would write it. Psalm 55, 1 Peter 5. Cast your cares unto the Lord, for he cares for you. Cast your burdens unto the Lord, and he will sustain you. And the idea behind casting, I taught this before, it's the idea of throwing something, rolling something that very well might roll back on you. And you say, what's the catch? And I say, that's the point. I thought I prayed up this burden. I felt like it was released. And I would say to you, it was. Well, then how come I feel like it fell right back on my shoulders? And I said, that's because it did. Throw it back. Just as I do with Ezekiel teaching him the catch. Here you go, son. And I throw it to him. And he's very uncoordinated because he's only two and a half. So he'll drop it. And I don't scold him. I say, son, pick it up and throw it back. And he picks it up and he throws it back. And I say, good job. I help him with his form right next time. Throw it like this. And then I say, keep your eyes on the ball, son. And I throw it back. This time it hits his chest and he catches it. And I go, good job. Throw it back. And he throws it back with better form. And I catch it and I throw it a little bit harder. And he catches it and then he throws it back. And him and I, my son, the father and the son are now having an interaction and a catch. And all the while, he doesn't even see that I'm just developing him. See, that burden will fall back on your shoulders. But the more you throw it back to the father and the more he says we're playing catch, the more intimacy is developed. And I'll tell you what, your form and your fashion and your coordination, it gets more fluent to be able to cast those burdens when they come. Is this making sense? This is faith. This is faith. Notice he also says, how long you owe sons of men categorizing a group of people 
that are turning his glory to shame. Now, David specifically is saying of himself that his glory is his honor, it's his reputation, it's his character. And whatever is being said of him, whatever is happening behind the scenes, he is saying to them, how long are you going to take my glory? And he was in a very high position. He was the king and turn it into something shameful. He's also saying the same thing about why do they seek lies and worthlessness, right? That's really when somebody is slanderous, when somebody has a vendetta against you, their imagination can run wild and the devil loves a wild imagination. And he'll fill that imagination with a lot of untruths. And this is what David is saying. But you know how else I see this? Let's change the voice. David's writing it, but the Bible's alive. It's God's word. Who else could ask such a question of the sons of men? I think Jesus could. I think Jesus' entire ministry could ask this question. How long, how long will you turn my glory to shame? There he was, the son of God, in the very midst of those he came to save and his entire ministry and his miracles and his messages, his glory was turned to shame by so many. Are you understanding this? Think about the next line. How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? There he was, the embodiment of truth himself, Jesus. And the people were turning away from him and seeking worthless idols and religions and things that were false. So I see this twofold. I see it's David's indictment on his enemies, but I see it's also God's indictment on humanity. Jesus' entire ministry fulfills these questions. And even now, if God was going to ask humanity a question, what would it be? Psalm 2 kind of helps frame those questions like, why do the nations rage? Why are the people plotting a vain thing? Don't you know my answer is installing my king on my holy hill in Zion. I'm sitting in heaven. I'm laughing because every attempt that you make to overthrow my kingdom and my throne, it's laughable because it can't happen. What I've accomplished and fulfilled is already done. I think if he was going to ask a follow-up question to humanity, it would be right here. How long, humanity, will you turn my glory to shame? How much longer? Will you reject truth and love worthless things and seek falsehood? All in one verse. You can see God's holy frustration. And then, of course, regardless of what's being said, the lies, the slander, whether towards David, whether using Jesus towards Jesus, the Lord's work on earth cannot be stopped, cannot be hindered. Did you know that? They can say whatever they're going to say, but they can't stop God's word from being fulfilled. It's kind of like out of verse two, the questions, which is his frustration, what's happening against him. Everyone is talking about him. He then in verse three, you ready for this? He makes a positive confession. And this is what you need to do when you feel like everything's crashing down around you. You need to make positive confession. My circumstances and what I see with the naked eye, they look terrible. But I'm going to begin to see my circumstances from the spiritual eye. And verse three tells me how. Ready? 
but know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. You know why this is such an encouragement? See, a lot of times our circumstances are what dictate our faith. Very rare for us to allow our faith to dictate how we're viewing our circumstances. Circumstances often are trying to tell me about who my God is. If he loved you, he wouldn't have allowed that to happen to you. If he was for you, then why in the world are you in the circumstance and situation that you're in? No, your circumstances are lying. When your faith tells your circumstances about your God, verse three, No, no, I know my Lord has set apart for himself those that are godly. In other words, he's gonna use my circumstances as a way to set me apart because he's got something greater for me to accomplish. And I recognize he was not going to leave me in the condition he found me. He was going to use all the things in my life to begin to refine me. And I'm thankful, your pastor is saying he's thankful that God in verse three saw something worthy in his son that he would set me apart for four years and seven months in a place called prison where he can begin to get my undivided attention. And if my naked eye saw my circumstances, I would have said my life is over. There's no way I can overcome this. Where is my deliverance? But if I kept my eyes on heaven and I knew God is faithful and he's been faithful back then, he'll be faithful again that I settled in to circumstances that the world said were horrible. And yet God, he used those same circumstances to develop something inside of me that he wanted to give to the world. Are you understanding what I'm saying? The Lord will hear when I call to him. See, your life is set apart as a Christian. Your marriage is set apart as a Christian. Your family is set apart as a Christian. And you might feel like all those things I just listed are falling apart because your naked eye sees that they are. I'm asking you to lift up your spiritual eye and know that God has set it apart And what he has set apart, he is responsible to begin working in the midst of. See, whatever God has set apart, the enemy wants to tear apart. That's a real force that is at work. Why is this happening? Because there's an enemy that wants to tear your life apart. He wants everything about your life to fall apart. Matthew Henry said this, let this, let this hit you. Extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins, but sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces, sanctified afflictions are spiritual promotions. This would be a quote that would be rightly divided or applied to a Job. No, Job, what's happening to you is probably because there's unhidden sin in your life and you're being punished. And God's like, actually, no, he's being promoted. This quote would be applicable for a Joseph. How do you end up in a pit and then a prison? You end up in a pit and a prison because God has a divine plan to set you apart for a palace. 
Listen, I cannot put a timeline on God's work. We do, right? We're like a microwave mentality people. We want him to do it in a minute. And sometimes what he's doing takes a lot, a lot longer. It's got to marinate. I've not used the Romans 8.28 analogy in a long time about the different ingredients. Each ingredient is separate. If, you're, <laughs> if you have different ingredients on the table, it takes time to put them together. What I love about that process is that whatever you're doing, whether you're baking something, cooking something, one of the first instructions that you're told to do is to go preheat the oven. God has preheated your circumstances. And he's waiting for you to trust him with all the ingredients. Because each ingredient taken by itself sometimes doesn't have a positive effect. But when you put it all into that bowl and you begin to mix it up, the mixture and the texture comes together. And I love the aspect behind whether it's cookies or brownies or muffins, you go ahead and you anoint the pan with butter. That's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. In my cookbook, it is. Right? And then you pour it in and then you put it in the oven. And the Lord begins to do his work. Like this is what's happening in the midst of this psalm. Now, verse four is an enigma only because is he applying it to himself? Is he saying it of his enemies? I go, why not both? He's already just vented heavenward. He knows God is his righteousness. God can relieve him in the midst of his distress. He is claiming God. He is wanting God to answer him based on God's mercy, not his merit. He is presented that there are people who are saying some really foul things and doing some hurtful things. How much longer are they going to continue to do that? He then recognizes he's been set apart. And God's going to hear his plea. And then verse four says, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Selah. Why is that an awesome verse? Because I don't know about you, but when I think about circumstances that are happening against me, it's very easy to get angry. So David could take his anger and lash out on his subjects or whoever these people are. And he was the king and he had the means and the resources to do it. Maybe he's applying it to himself. Maybe after he recognizes that he's set apart and God is going to hear him, the very next best thing he could do is not allow his anger to dominate him. What's the best place to find yourself cooling off? He says, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still, be still. The reason I love this is because one, that line, be angry and do not sin. Did you know Paul pulls from this Psalm in Ephesians chapter four, verse 26? It's, it's verbatim, Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. He pulled it from Psalm 4. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why? Nor give place to the devil. In these verses, we learn that anger is an emotion and it's natural and spiritual and not sinful. It's what you do with your anger 
that can either become righteous or unrighteous. We don't understand this. Anger is a unique emotion. You understand it when you're driving and somebody cuts you off though, right? Something wells up inside of you. And if you don't have a proper place to channel that anger, this finger is not coming up. Another finger is. And you're doing all that with a landmark magnet on the back of your car. (laughs) Thank you. Listen, Christians should feel a holy, righteous anger. When we see children, being negatively affected in any way. We should be angry at what sin is doing to people's lives. We should feel an anger when we see families fall apart. I mean, I can give you a billion scenarios about what should make the Christian angry. However, knowing how to channel anger in a righteous way. It's a very complicated thing without the Holy Spirit. Often anger can turn over to rage and fury. They have a category of crimes called crimes of what? And sometimes the crime was committed by somebody who loved the other person so deeply that the anger, whatever happened, turned to an immediate rage And they were able to do something to somebody they loved in that unstable state of mind. Is this making sense? (laughs) Not getting there clearly, but some of us are allowing our anger to dictate how we're responding to people or how we're even viewing our circumstances. And that anger is not righteous. And the prayer would be, God, give me a righteous anger. I personally know me and I have a very sensitive and a high degree of what is called justice, whatever that means. It means if I'm walking down the sidewalk and I see somebody getting picked on, I'm not gonna be able to just walk by. I'm gonna stop, maybe say something, maybe get involved. That's just me. Now, whether that's spirit-led or in the flesh, that's just the way the Lord wired me. That's why I was able to, at certain times, take certain stands in a place like prison, Didn't matter how many guys outnumbered, if they were doing something that was unrighteous in front of me, I had a high degree of anger that I wanted to stop them from doing that. You have a anger problem, pastor? Yes, 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 I do. Yes, I do. I have a righteous anger problem when I see God's children being mistreated, when I see people that are abused and misused. I cannot turn a blind eye. I have a high degree of anger. However, I wanna do so without sinning, as Paul writes and as David writes. Where do I go, is the question, when I feel something welling up. David says, go to your bed, meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. I think the translation is, let go and let God. Go lay down, right? This is what I'm going to say to Ezekiel tonight when he has a temper tantrum. Listen to me, Ezekiel. Be angry and do not sin. (laughs) Meditate within your heart. Go to your room, get on your bed, and be still. Do you understand me? That'd be very biblical. 
See, it's not a sin to get angry when you are getting angry at sin. It's not a sin to get angry when you're getting angry at sin. The goal is to hate what God hates and love what God loves. Psalm 97:10. you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. What am I to do then? Well, after you cool off, spiritually speaking, you meditate on your bed, on God's faithfulness. Vengeance is his, saith the Lord. Let him deal with what you can't deal with. Then verse five is in effect. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Translation, just do the next righteous thing. Wake up the next day and put your right foot forward and do the next righteous thing. Say the next righteous thing. What is the believer to do in the waiting time? The next righteous thing. Trust in the Lord. Obviously, David's speaking of actual sacrifices. The sacrificial system was fulfilled in our sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Therefore, what did he leave in place of his sacrifice? A life of righteousness. I think of what Micah said. It's a rhetorical question. He says, Micah, is it five verse two or six verse two? Five. What does the Lord require of us? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Micah six, eight. That's right. Micah five, two is probably about one of the holidays coming up. Do justly, do justice. Listen, that is not a mantra for an entire social justice movement. You know why? Because it's individual. The word of God is saying, no, don't worry about all that. You do justice. You do what's righteous. This is what's required of you, O man. Love mercy, compassion, and walk humbly with your God. I think of David writing in Psalm 51, which was the Psalm written right after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan in one of his gravest sins and cover-ups. This is with Bathsheba, adultery, premeditated murder, and even the cover-up thereafter. He writes the Psalm of Repentance in Psalm 51. Towards the middle of that Psalm, he says this, that what is it that God requires or accepts? What are the sacrifices that God honors? Anybody know it? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. What is it that God accepts? Brokenness. Contrition. This is where God works. Some of us want to be broken without our circumstances. You know, when Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he begs God, he pleads with God to remove something in his life. I believe there's another example of ambiguity. We don't know what the thorn was. Some have suggested it was certain things, a physical ailment. Some said it was an external enemy. I'm convinced these are the ambiguities of God because he doesn't want us to know what it is so that I can't say, Brother Jay, that's not a thorn. Paul's thorn was this, get over it. No, the thorn is so general that what it is in my life that's irritating me right now. And I'm asking, God, please change this. Please move in my life. Get this out of me. And he's saying, listen, my grace is sufficient. Translation, I want the thorn to be my throne so my power can rest upon you. Because when you're weak, that's when you're strong. 
for my power is made manifest when you're at your weakest. Are you getting this church? It's paradoxical. The world says the opposite of that. God says, my, de- my strength works through your dependence. Verse six, then another question, perhaps the antagonist out there, the non-believer, the critic, the skeptic. There are many who say, who will show us any good? You say your God is good, prove it. David says, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You know where he pulled that from? Number six, it's the exact line in the priestly prayer. You know that prayer? The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. What a prayer. What a blessing. David is saying here, Lord, regardless of what they're saying, regardless of what my circumstances are saying, you lift up your favor upon me. And that is why I'm here to tell you the greatest prayer you can pray is not for good fortune. The greatest prayer you can pray tonight is for God's favor. Pray for his favor. Verse seven and eight are obviously the response of his heart and soul. As you walk through those first six verses, notice where he's taken us. Starts out with who God is. He recognizes he only has a basis to be in God's presence, not on his merit, but based on God's mercy. He identifies the problem. There are those that are saying this, they're doing that. I don't know where to turn. He then turns to the only one who can deal with his problems. You set me apart for this, oh God. You are the one who will hear my prayer. God says, yeah, that's right. Go lay down, deal with your anger. Don't sin. Meditate about me on your bed. Be still, I got this. He wakes up, he offers the sacrifices of a righteous life. God, you got this. He puts his trust in the Lord. He recognizes there are people who are watching him navigate these hard circumstances. And he knows they're saying, where's your God at in this? He says, my God's right here. Lift up your favor upon me. Q verse seven and eight. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increase. Translation, you have made me more joyful than the time of the harvest when people were celebrating and partying based on the crops that were yielded. And of course, the wine that was in their vats. He's saying like that and more, you've put joy in my heart. Gladness and joy are not natural emotions as much as they are spiritual conditions. You want to know how I know that? Because I watched joy exist in my mother and my father's eyes. At the same time, there were tears that were welling up in their eyes and falling down their cheeks at the same time that they were grieving over the loss of their oldest son, there was a joy and a sparkle that could not be a natural emotion as much as it had to be a spiritual condition. They recognized their circumstances were telling them one thing. This is not good. This does not feel good. This does not look good. They were able to at least say, 
we agree with all that, but our God is good. And because he is good, I'm going to allow him to handle what I can't. Verse eight, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. How can you do that, David? You recognize your life is falling apart? Yeah, I can do that because you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's how I can do that. You know, one of the ways that they used to, they still do in certain countries, one of the more vicious ways of torturing a human being, you know what it was? You guys are right in the text, sleep deprivation. I want you to think about that. They would use sleep deprivation as a way to torture someone. Can you understand that there's a very real enemy? If that's what human enemies did to those those that they wanted to torture, are you understanding there's a real enemy and one of his tactics is also sleep deprivation? And listen, I know going through hell on earth and trying to find rest at night is not an easy task. I know that. And I'm not going to ever tell you, you should be able to fall asleep at night. God's got it. No. But at least the process of knowing he's got it can help you fight that battle when the enemy is trying to keep your mind active and up and at it and trying to figure everything out. And then you, here's how sleep deprivation impacts us. We wake up the next day and now we're even tired emotionally and physically. And now we got to attack the day. Something else comes at us that we didn't see coming. And I can't wait to get to bed at night just to lay down. And it happens all over again. This is one of the tactics of the enemy. And I would encourage each of us to ask for even more prayer covering. If that's you, you need a brother and sister to begin praying for you, that God would give you sweet rest at night. Can I tell you this separate of what you're going through? January 6th, 2009, 2010, 2010 was the night before I was to be sentenced to prison. I had no idea what the judge was going to render down as his decision. I knew a range right? Five to 10 years. That's all I knew. I'm thankful that I had a family at the time who kept reminding me to be still and commit my circumstances and my future to God. And one of the more sound nights of sleep that I have and I remember in my life was January 6, 2010. And I woke up knowing that I'm about to put on a suit and on the other side of the procedure leave with a jumpsuit. And yet there was a peace that only the Lord God could provide. You want to know why he gives us his peace in the midst of our circumstances. It's one, a way for us to continue to rely on him. How do I know that I'm in his will? I'm at peace. The moment I step outside of that path and I start to get anxious and frustrated. It's like God reminding me that I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Come back to peace. Paul would write, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. You know what that meant? 
It meant umpire. It meant let the peace of God be an umpire. An umpire is either calling things in, safe, or out. And that's what the peace of God does. Chaos and confusion come when God is not allowed to be God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, right? You know this verse, church. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The idea behind the peace of God, the shalom of God, guarding your heart. It's a soldier deployed. God says, peace go to the heart and mind of that man or that gal and stand on guard against any anxiety and any worry and remind them that I am the God of all peace. Second Thessalonians 3.16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way the Lord be with you all. Did you catch that? What a blessing. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you his peace at all times in every way the Lord be with you all. See, peace that guards is the byproduct of letting God be God. That's Psalm 4. Letting God be God. Listen, second by second, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, letting God be God. When you start to take your circumstances back and you feel anxious, let them go and let God be God. Pull open the scriptures. Let Psalm 4 speak to you. Let it be a reminder that God is with you. David went through his circumstances. His conclusion, regardless of nothing changing, was that God was his security, his stability, and his safety. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Daniel 6. What people were saying of Daniel eventually got him into some trouble. He maintained his conviction and his faith in Daniel 6. He's an elderly man at this time. Backstory is not as important as what happens next. The consequences of praying to anyone but the king was punishable by lion's jaws. It's a very common way in the Persian empire for them to deal with criminals, throw them to the lions. They would starve the lions before they would throw somebody in so that the lions were immediate and they would, they would pounce on whoever fell down that hole or that hatch and they would be dead within seconds. King Darius at the time had an affinity towards Daniel. He respected Daniel. His hands were tied. Daniel had violated the king's decree. The Medes and Persians' decrees were irreversible. The king himself could not change the consequence of Daniel's faithfulness. They took Daniel. They threw him into the lion's den. This is that famous scene that you see. But do we ever stop and consider, one, it was real, not some story we just tell our children. It was a real historical event. I wonder how fast he hit the bottom of that hole and then they would cover it. It then takes us not into the lion's den. Did you know that in Daniel 6? 
I always see it from cinematography, like a camera, a good movie. Daniel falls down, they shut the cave, and the camera pans. And it takes you into the king's quarters, his bedroom. (laughs) And the text tells us the king could not sleep. He's worried about Daniel. He's restless. He gets up as early as he can. He runs down to the den. Take the stone off. Daniel, has your God delivered you? Yes, O king. My God sent his angel who shut the jaws of the lion. The king in his comfortable bedroom was anxious and sleepless. And Daniel was down in the den with the lions, probably catching a cat nap, pun intended. (laughs) Do Do you understand? Daniel trusted God for the outcome. So I'm going to say this, and I hope you join me in it. If you have never heard me say this, you'll get, you'll, get, you'll get with it as Wednesdays go on. Since we're not dead, we're not done. We've heard it tonight by God's grace. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your word was clear. I pray it ministers to the souls of those before me and those that will watch this message thereafter. We bless your holy name, and I do pray a special blessing upon your people. Oh, Lord, bless them and keep them. Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Lift up your countenance and your favor to them and grant them your peace. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, church.